0: for now. So open your Bibles to Colossians 2. If you have got it with you, you can use your phone as well, otherwise it'll be up on the screen. Colossians 2, verse 11. That says, in him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, which is to be buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. I'll stop there for a moment. Now, I wanted to talk about, Romans calls it the circumcision of the heart and Colossians explains it as putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Okay. So if you look at the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, God called specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he said for the first time, this is just kind of a fun fact about Old Testament too that the first time God's love ever shows up is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So you've got the first 5 books of the Bible written by Moses, and the fourth of those books, or excuse me, fifth of those books, Deuteronomy, is the first time in chapter 7 that we ever hear God's love show up. It's interesting because we know that God has been loving the whole time, but he doesn't actually talk about his love until five books into the Bible. And he says about Israel that he loves them, that they're his special people, and he chose them out of every nation to be his people and that he could be their God. So he's establishing that he has a very unique relationship with them. And then he gives to Abraham first what's called the sign of circumcision. Which in the New Testament context, Paul says is not about the flesh, but about the heart. And so the cutting off of the flesh that was represented in the circumcision given to Abraham is supposed to be then a symbolism, a type and shadow we call it for the new covenant, which means that as Christians today, we are cutting off what Paul calls the body of the sins of the flesh. We're cutting ourselves off from the world. Not to avoid the world, not to neglect the world, but to be set apart from them, sanctified, not living the same way, not thinking the same way. Everything's different, the way we live. And yet we love them all the same. And so putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Now, when we think about a nation being sanctified, it started with Israel, but in the New Testament, First Peter 2, it says in verse 9 that you're a chosen generation royal priesthood and a holy nation so it actually calls christians a nation which is unique because we're not a kind of nation like israel biologically or i should say you know genetically speaking but we're a nation he calls us now if we're a nation he says that we're the chosen nation chosen generation so the people that he has chosen out from all the people and nations of the earth to be his very own which uh, gives the christian a unique relationship with god that he says in I think it's Isaiah chapter 49 that one of the reasons that he chose us was to be his salvation in this world. So whatever God would do to deliver the world from pain, suffering, sin, regret, bitterness, all that he says he wants to accomplish through his church. Now, there's something specifically about the nation of Israel that carries into the new covenant that applies to the Christian today that uh, I want to talk about this morning. And it has to do with what was in the Old Testament called the Levitical priesthood. Now, Israel is made up of 12 tribes. Jacob, his name was also Israel, had 12 sons. One of those sons was named Levi. And out of Levi's lineage came what was called the tribe of Levi or the Levites. And in Exodus, God separated the Levites from all the people, all the people of God. And he said, the Levites are the ones specifically responsible for being what you may call ambassadors of him, his priests, his mouthpiece. They were the ones responsible for making the sacrifices, for doing the worship. For example, the first time we see musical worship show up in the Bible is when King David arose, and and uh, he appointed Levites to be the ones responsible for doing the worship leading, if you will. And um, so it was always the Levites that were doing it. And when, when Israel came into their promised land, which was called Canaan, he had the land divided up and allotted in in regions to these different tribes of Israel. But then Levi, the tribe of Levi, wasn't actually given any land. What it says about the tribe of Levi, what God says to them is that I am your inheritance. My presence, my power, my voice, that's your inheritance. In other words, he's telling the Levites, the special relationship you have with me is your inheritance. I am not allotting to you anything earthly. Now, the, the reason why this applies to us is because the Bible says in Revelation 1 verse 6 that we are kings and priests and it actually takes a New Testament fulfillment of the priesthood gives it to the Christian and essentially it says and Peter echoes this in his epistle that our inheritance is not anything in this world our inheritance is God his presence our relationship with him and we live in this world not to inherit anything material or earthly but to inherit his presence the Bible actually says that we are God's inheritance too. So this two-way relationship we have with him is our allotted reward, if you will. And we're living in this world, Peter says, as sojourners and pilgrims. That's also in chapter 2. two. It essentially means that we're passing through, we're not to be attached to anything in this world, dependent on it for happiness, security, so on and so forth. So then, if God is our inheritance and his presence is our allotted reward, then Everything that people in this, you know, life, things that are of this earth that people grow fond of, is that kind of lifestyle per se, is the, one of the number one things that God says is the Christian is supposed to avoid, an attachment to, to things of this earth. And um, this, uh, this gets into a number of epistles, it's also in the gospels, and we're going to look at this, but... In uh, Mark chapter 4, which is where we're going to go next, Um, it's the parable of the sower. We're going to take a verse out of there and read it. It's interesting because like in 1 Timothy 2, for example, Paul writes to Timothy, who's a a young young pastor, and he says that anyone engaged in warfare does not entangle himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That's verse 4, I believe, in 1 Timothy 2. He doesn't entangle himself with the affairs of this life. And so he applies that to Timothy, which obviously applies to us in saying, as soon as you get entangled, caught up in, distracted by, tangled up in what Paul calls the affairs of this life, and uh, Parable the Sower calls it the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things. That's what being entangled means. And what's interesting is that when you look at the history of Israel, before we read uh, Mark 4 here, when you look at the history of the nation of Israel, God had them go into Canaan, and he said, when you came out of Egypt, or while you were in Egypt, while you were slaves, you were given cucumbers, onions, food. They, they actually were quite well fed, even though they were being oppressed as slaves, and the Israelites talked about this. So Then they go into Canaan, and all of a sudden, they're independent. They're not slaves anymore. They're free to make their own decisions, and they don't really know how. It's kind of a problem, because they've been slaves for 400 years. Then they go into Canaan and God says I'm sending you into a land that is completely prepared for you. There's vineyards already there, olive groves already there, fruit trees already there ready for you. There's houses already built, walls already built. Your job is to drive out all the inhabitants and I'm just gonna hand it to you on a silver platter. So Then they go into that land and then God reminds the people constantly but remember that the reason why I chose you was not to give you fruit trees and walls and houses and mansions. The reason why I gave you this land was so that you could be a nation set apart unto me, so that your the, the house of the Lord, which is their temple, would be a house of prayer for all nations. So he wanted them to be this focal point, demonstrating, showing off the presence of God that would draw all nations to God as a result. But they started to go grow so attached to the, the materiality of what they had in Canaan, that the time came when they disobeyed God, they, Jeremiah calls it, they forsook him, And God brought them out of Israel and then they were dispersed as slaves again in Babylon for another 70 years after that before they were restored and the reason why it's important for me to say that is that in applying it to the church today what God has called us to the reason why he set us apart was so that we could be his people and he he would be our God a nation set apart to be what you may call dispensers of his presence and and heavenly realities and so as soon as we grow attached to the materiality, just like Israel, of what we're also given as a blessing, then we're gonna end up forsaking the real reward, the real promise. It's just like with Esau, for example, when he gives up his birthright for a bowl of soup, he's, he's laying down something of eternal value just for the sake of some temporary satisfaction or gratification, which everything in this world is temporary. And so in Mark chapter four, um, if we read in verse, uh, I'll just start in verse 13 at the top of his, his explanation of the parable. So Mark four thirteen says, And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. These are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Luke chapter eight says that no fruit comes to maturity. We're gonna focus on the thorns part of this parable. Now, first of all, it's important that Jesus says If you don't understand this parable, you won't understand any other parable. What's the point? If you don't get the message in this teaching of Jesus, nothing else is going to mean anything to you. Because everything that we learn about God, about the life he's called us to, comes through his word. So if you don't understand how to receive the word, you can't receive anything that the word offers as a result. So, The the understanding how to receive the word is, is hugely important. So then... When he gets into the thorns aspect of of the soil, thorny soil, he says that what chokes out the word is cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Now, in uh, the word cares there in the Greek, if you look it up with a concordance, it's a word that means dividedness. So when it says cares of this world, they added, in English, they wrote it down as cares because in Greek, it doesn't exactly completely make sense. It says the dividedness of this world, if you translate it literally. And so the reason why it's important to mention that is because he's saying being distracted by the world, being caught up entangled in cares of this world is to be divided in your affection, divided in your pursuit, divided in your, your efforts, the, the purpose for which you wake up in the morning and decide to live another day. And... Knowing that receiving the word is the medium by which everything else in this life and in godliness is received, then if we can't get away from this being entangled with the cares of this world, then there's nothing else that we can receive. This is why it's so, so important that when you, when you see God choosing Israel, he says in Exodus 25, it's like I think around verse 20 something in Exodus 25, he says that the, the thing that I've called you to, if, if he's to sum it all up and the reason why I chose you, he says is so that you can go into the most holy place and hear my voice to speak to you. And he says uniquely in, in Romans, Paul talks about this, that the advantage that the Jew had over every other person on the planet was that they were given the oracles of God. In other words, they were given the written word of God. God spoke to Israel in a way that he spoke to no other nation on the face of the earth at the time. So he's saying, if you don't value my word, there is nothing else I can do for you, is what he's trying to tell Israel. And the, the climax, the culmination of you being chosen is to hear my voice. So then when you've got Jesus showing up in Hebrews 1, it says that in times past when God spoke through the prophets, now he has spoken to us through his son, that he has appointed the heir of all things. So it says that God has spoken to us as believers through the person of Jesus. Now that Jesus died and rose again, he gave us what we now call the New Testament. And Jesus is saying, if you can't receive my word with a good and noble heart, nothing else will matter because the thing that makes us set apart is that God communicates to us in a way that he doesn't with anyone who doesn't know Christ. And so the number one thing that chokes out the effect of God's presence and promise in your life is these four or three, I should say descriptions of things that either choke out the word snuff out the word cause it to be plucked away um the first thing when he says the seed is is plucked away uh matthew 13 says that that's when you don't understand the word so he says the first thing to make sure you receive this properly is to make sure you understand it If you don't understand it then it's going to be plucked away then uh stony ground is that there's no root in other words it's it becomes surface level superficial christianity as soon as your if your knowledge of God remains superficial, if it remains baseline status quo Christianity, there's no root. So when hardship arises, you don't have any strength, just like with a tree to stand when there's a raging storm, the tree falls, it's uprooted. So if you don't have root in the word, he says that also causes causes you to stumble. Then the third thing, which is a thorny soil is being distracted or divided in your affection because of cares of this world and desires for other things. So then what's interesting is that in especially in the West, particularly America, it's very, very easy to think that we're remaining strong with a surface level Christianity. It's very easy. there's not really any real hardship Now I'm not talking about like you know, being criticized by someone or, you know, being insulted by a coworker because of what you believe or whatever. None of that is real persecution. And most, most Christians in America have not actually experienced any, any real real persecution. But Jesus says specifically, tribulation, hardship, persecution is one of the things that causes the word to, to not produce any fruit in your life. If you don't have any rootedness in it. But for the sake of this message, cares of this world... I want to look at specifically here now the desires for other things. Now, if you look throughout Scripture, again, going back to the Old Testament, the the, the prime instruction that God gave to the people in his words, and this is in like Deuteronomy 6, uh, I think it's like verses 5 through 9. He says, the words that I have commanded you today shall be in your heart, he says, not just in your mind, in your heart. Then he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and put them as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He tells them, take my word, the thing that makes you a special nation, my communication to you. He says, teach it to your children. It's not just a Sunday school thing. He says, when you sit down for dinner, when you rise up in the morning, when you go on a walk with your kids, put it on your, make bracelets and put scripture on bracelets and put it on necklaces and put it on your doorposts. and." Put it all over your property, everything you own. He says, put scripture everywhere. And then in Joshua, he says, if you meditate on it day and night, then you prosper and have good success. That's Joshua 1, verse 8. And then you go into Psalms 1, verses 1 through 3, where it says that if you meditate on the word day and night, then you'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water bearing fruit in its season. So he says it's a plantedness by rivers of water to be fruitful comes through meditating on the word day and night. Psalms 119, the the chapter in Psalms is the longest chapter in the whole Bible, and the whole of Psalm 119 is dedicated to God through several different psalmists expressing the love that they have for what they called the law of the Lord at the time, which in our vernacular is just scripture, the word of God. That was the thing. He said, your key instruction is to meditate on this day and night, and then you will prosper And Deuteronomy 28 says, "In everything that you put your hand to, you will prosper. Everything. There is nothing you can't succeed in if you meditate on my word day and night, is what God said. Now, if Jesus says you can be unfruitful by being distracted by desires for other things, then what he's really trying to say is that as soon as we drift away from an exclusivity of affection on God and his word, and you start desiring other things, not just you know, I'm not talking about having hobbies. That's healthy. I'm just saying like when your heart starts to go after something that is not of God, when it starts to become a real distraction to you, he says that makes you unfruitful. Now, another thing about Christianity in the West is not only is it easy to be a superficial Christian, but it's also easy to be divided and also think you're okay. Because there are so many things in this nation, we can be distracted by so many things you can watch, so many things you can listen to. In fact, one of the things that's interesting about the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, where it says that the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's actually a kind of knowledge that God says was what produced death. In Daniel, it talks about how the time of the end, where iniquity would increase, he says that, people will run to and fro and knowledge will increase is what a prophecy in Daniel says though. So, so the increase of knowledge and the increase to increase in access to knowledge is one of the things that brought death into creation. You just think about it deeply, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's why things like education can be although it's not inherently wrong, it's good, wrong kind of education, wrong kind of knowledge, knowledge of things that are ultimately worthless, is you know, a, a negative thing. And so it's just kind of interesting that Jesus, or God says in the Old Testament, meditate on the word day and night, and it is just my word. That's the only thing you set your heart and affection on. You, you love the law of the Lord, and that is all that you think about. You put it everywhere. And then Jesus says, if you're divided in your attention, you're going to be unfruitful. So then you look at another example is in Matthew 6. Uh, I think it's verse 22. I was reading this last night. Where Jesus says, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. King James Version, and what I just quoted to you is New King James, which is what I'm reading out of right now. But King James Version is a more accurate, accurate translation. I would say the most accurate translation of that verse. And it says, if your eye be single... Your whole body shall be full of light. What's the point? New King James translates it as, if your eye is good, that's not what the word means. It's written in King James Version as single because it's talking about laser focused. In fact, the word means bound up. You're so closely attached to it, you're bound up in it. It's actually a word that means twisted around. Ultimately, in this case, God and his word. If your eye is single, so laser focused, exclusivity, then your whole body, which in that case context is your whole life, will be full of light. Then it says if your eye is evil, which is another very expansive word, but it simply put, it calls it evil. It says if your eye is evil, your whole body is full of light. The point is that your eyes are what God has ordained as the gateway to your heart, your soul, to the really your whole life. And so when God said, put scripture on your doorposts, on bracelets, on necklaces, put it everywhere, what's the point? If you're always looking at it. It's going to make your eyes single. Your whole body will then be full of light. But as soon as we start to get divided, one day our eyes want to go this way, another day our eyes want to go that way, that dividedness, Jesus says, what makes us unfruitful. So the point is that if we allow ourselves not just to be entertained by, but to be drawn away to anything that will distract us, numb us, give us a time killer, things like that, it can very easily become negative or uh, a detriment to to the uh, the growth in Christ and the, the abundant life that Jesus really says He wants us to have. Now, I just I was specifically convicted about this last night because um, just with my my wife and I have been talking about this and going over what we need to do for our lives, for the sake of our future children and household, to make sure that it is all light in our home and. I, I've mentioned this a couple weeks ago um, when I was teaching on Hebrews 13 where it says that one aspect of marriage is that it's undefiled when it's held in honor and established rightly. And we lo- I looked at the word undefiled specifically, which is a word in Scripture that means that it is completely free from sin. Sin can't touch it. It's totally pure, untainted by anything evil. And so God actually says there are, are a few things in Scripture. The word undefiled is only used four times in the Old Testament very unique word. And it's used a few times to um, ascribe a characteristic to something in this life that God says we can experience. One of them is marriage. Jesus as a person is another one. Then it talks about pure and undefiled religion or a walk of faith, things like that. And the point is that there are things that God has given us in this life that can provide us and our households with a literal concentrated earthly experience of heaven itself. And the Bible actually describes heaven as being undefiled. There is no sin there. The reason why heaven is so amazing is because there is nothing there that defiles. So if God says there are things in this life that are undefiled, that means there are things in this life right now that are heaven on earth that we can experience, literally. And so then if God says to prosper in everything you do and have good success comes through meditating on the word day and night, then it means i got to think about it this way. If if how Adam and Eve lived before the fall of man is what really is heaven on earth, because that's what they experienced, then is there anything that I listen to or watch that has been influenced or drawn from sin that only came into the world after the fall? Because the whole idea of us being justified, the whole idea of us being set free and made new, to become ambassadors of Jesus is that God in justifying us, the word means to be, to make us innocent. When he makes us innocent, he sets us apart from everything that defiles so that our lives become completely pure, untouched, uninfluenced by the evil and the sin in this world. And so I just realized like, how would I think if, I mean, if I imagine myself all the way back in the garden of Eden, this is a good question for you guys to ask yourselves. If we go all the way back to the garden of Eden, Let's just say, for example, they had modern technology back then. If that were the case, if right now I lived in the Garden of Eden and I had a television and a computer and an iPhone and all these things and, and there was no sin, what would I think about? How would I talk? What could I have the ability to watch, to listen to? So on and so forth. And he wants us to, to bring us back to that. that. I mean, that is heaven on earth. When, when things are undefiled, that is, that's what heaven is. And, And so I've specifically been convicted recently about doctrines, teachings, ideologies, ideals that many of us have just kind of accepted as normal, which are adversely affecting our walk with God and our experience of life simply because of a complacency in the area of dividedness. Desires for other things. So I guess to kind of really bring this down, when, when we're talking about, to, to boil it down, when we're talking about fruitfulness, this really means being prolific, being people who accomplish what God says we should accomplish in this life. For his work and purpose. To accomplish his will. And do so with good success. He says you cannot be divided in your attention. Now just as to give you an example, when we start talking about healing, physical healing, people being miraculously healed, it is very easy for us to try out a particular ministry and then because of some momentary or consistent failure or lack of understanding, we just say things like, well, it just must not have been God's will. And then we continue living the way that we always did before when Jesus's point is that in order to be fruitful, in order to succeed, in what God has called you to do, there can be no dividedness. So the point is, how can I have a pure faith for someone to be healed if then after trying to minister to someone, I walk away and live the rest of my life as if content and input doesn't matter and i'm just pumping into my brain ideas of the world that are not of faith that are not godly in principle that are that are not positively influencing me and then we start talking about faith and you've got you know the faith camp people and then you've got the kind of calvinistic if it be thy will camp and it's like if you have enough faith, it'll happen. And then people call that heresy. And then you've got the other other side of the spectrum where people say, well, if it's God's will, it'll happen. And then the faith people say, that's heresy. And it's like, who's right? We just look at what Jesus said, he said that if you believe and don't doubt in your heart, whatever you ask for, you'll receive. And he actually says, all things are possible to him who believes. So Jesus specifically says, it's about believing. But then he says, if you don't have doubt. Doubt is not something that, you know, it just kind of naturally grows in you. Doubt is something that is instilled through input. And so if you look at Peter as an example, Jesus said about Peter that when he looked at the wind and the waves, when he, they were uh, on the sea in a boat, when there was a storm, and it says when Peter looked at the raging storm, he then started to doubt and began to drown after he was, you know, walking on water in that particular story. And doubt, believe it or not, is a Greek word that is very similar to this cares of this world word. It also means dividedness. It means hesitation. And in James 1, it says, he who doubts is like a wind or wave of the sea, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. he says, let him not expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, for he's an a unstable man double-minded in all of his ways. James defines doubt as double-mindedness, dividedness. We were not born to live with doubt. But when you think about the Israelites, if we just take Moses as an example, they had no TV, they had no iPhone, all they had was themselves, their thoughts, and scripture. That was it. If all you put in is God, There is no room for doubt. And that's all you put in. But then we complain and say, God, help me believe more. But then we go and just watch things, listen to things. And we we struggle with doubt. And we want God to permit us to keep living the way we always have and consuming the content we always have and somehow supernaturally drop more faith on us. That's not how it works. That's why God said meditate exclusively on the word of God day and night then you will prosper and have good success you will that's the point so now this doesn't mean we can't watch movies and listen to music that's not the point the point is that we got to be really really careful because when you've got Jesus telling his disciples if you believe and have no doubt what the Holy Spirit was trying to reveal to me in that scripture is that that was a very easy and practical scripture for them because all they had was Jesus scripture and their thoughts it is Actually quite simple to get rid of doubt when you have that kind of lifestyle. Then you come today and you've got Jesus talking about cares of this life and desires for other things. There is no greater opportunity to have a desire for other things than in this day and age we live in. Because the knowledge of good and evil has exponentially increased, it's exploded everywhere. There's such a huge opportunity to learn and know and be interested in all these different things that people don't see the power in meditating on the word of God exclusively and specifically. And so I was being convicted about this and the Lord said, as, you know, as, as a leader and not, not just, I'm not talking about ministry or church stuff, I'm just saying, as somebody that I have called to be a priest and king to God, which is what Revelation says about all of us, somebody who's been called to be God's mouthpiece, somebody who's been called to show his kingdom off in this world, he said, if you're going to accomplish that and prosper in that, You cannot be divided. And he was very serious about this with me. And it was not condemnation. It was like, why? I will say it this way, that none of us have any excuse to complain about a lack of faith or doubt when we then go and fill our minds with things that are specifically intended by the enemy to fill you with doubt. It's just how it works. And and so then he he, he had me think about the disciples and, and he was like, You know, imagine if you were there with the 12 and Jesus said, if you believe and have no doubt, you will succeed. And then he'll say things like, all things are possible to him who believes and he'll say only believe. And it's like, if you say that to people now, it is so overly complicated. There's all this theology and explanation that surrounds the doctrine of having doubt or having faith. And it's become such a messy subject because of really all the different inputs we have. But then and he was just like, man, if you go back to the 12 disciples and Jesus, if you were there and Jesus said to you, have no doubt, only believe. And if you don't have doubt in your heart, whatever you say will be done. To them, it's a pretty simple instruction. Because if doubt means dividedness and not being attached to any care of the world, not being double-minded, The only way you can be double-minded is if you give your mind more than one thing to be focused on. And so it was a very simple instruction for them. And so he basically was saying to me, look, you seeing people healed, you're seeing people set free, you're adding the kind of power that he promises to our lives is not something that he's just going to magically drop out of the sky. The point is he says it is specifically attached to whether there's doubt or faith. And he says the doubt specifically comes from cares of this world, desires for other things, which produces this unfruitfulness instead of what he really does desire. And so we, uh, my wife and I made a couple decisions where it was like, you know what? We have to cut ourselves off from, and it's not just like shows and movies and stuff. It's like actual ideas, thought patterns, uh, you know, even relationships. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, evil communications corrupt good habits. He actually preludes that verse by saying, do not be deceived. Evil communications or what he calls evil company corrupts good habits. In Psalms 119, I think it's like 90 something, 97, around there somewhere. uh, The writer says, God, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. It doesn't say evil things or corrupt things. It says things that have no value, worthless things. So it's not, I mean, relationships. I mean, there was, I used to think that it's good to be well-rounded and like know what everyone around me is saying and purporting. And and so for a while, I just kind of had this season of my life where I would just like completely binge out unknowing you know, the skeptics and atheist arguments against Christianity, so I like, could have an answer for everything, but I became so familiar with the opposition that I forgot the good <laughs> part of it. And, and so even things like that where it's, look, if, if I'm not going to be completely and exclusively sold out in dedication and devotion to hearing and meditating on sound doctrine, everything else is just going to be a detriment to that. Now, this doesn't mean that we fear what's evil or are worried over what's evil. I'm not saying that. The point is what we look at and listen to set our attention on determines because of what Jesus said in Matthew six about your eye is what's going to determine my quality of life. And so this is between you and God for, to determine what, you know, what decision you guys will make around this. But I, I just, my heart is, I mean, most days, if not every day, I just sense this call of God for Christians in America to really just get serious about their faith and realize that, and the way that the Holy Spirit explained to me once was that if you choose this exclusive devotion to me with the kind of life that you have in America, that will make you. A stronger Christian than, than people in different nations around the world that don't have access to the privileges you do the reason why is because it's so easy to be distracted here that if we're not distracted here that will make us immune to things that people in other nations have never even seen or experienced and so it's almost like um, being a follower of Jesus in an era and in a time when everything tells you not to be makes your decision to follow Jesus initially much more difficult, but also makes you much more tenacious. Because if you choose him, the lifestyle that we have access to now, I mean, in Jesus' day, it would have been a pretty, pretty easy decision, at least at first, minus the persecution. There wasn't a whole lot you could do. It was basically like, well, you choose a trade. In Jesus' case, it was carpentry. That's about it, that's all they had. For the disciples, many of them, it was just fishing. That was what they did for a living, and so he was just the Holy Spirit was just explaining to me that like the, the, the church that he's raising up in America is gonna be one of the most, if not the most powerful body of believers that has really ever been seen, and there's, there's different ministers and prophets all over the place who are saying that God is preparing uh, actually bringing about right now, ushering in a revival that's going to come in many ways through Christians in the West. And the reason why is because when you have Christians with all the distractions like we have, and yet we're so sold out, it's, it's, it's like being Superman in, uh, I think it's the newer Superman movie, Man of Steel, where the idea is that he's from a planet that has a much higher gravitational pull. So when he comes to America, he's super strong because there's less gravity here. It's kind of that way with Christians in America. Like there's so much pull down on us to not follow Jesus that we make that decision now and then go somewhere else. Walking with Christ is walk in the park, easy. And so I was thinking, like I've I've encountered so many people that are overtly, and these are referring to people that are not Christians, so overtly, blatantly. Full of unbelief that i try to pray for them for healing and they're just or to receive christ and it's like it's hitting a wall and then i was like god it seems so hard at times to represent you here and then he says you know what if you go to the middle east people will think you're superhuman because they don't know that same thing here or where they live and so he was trying to explain he was encouraging me by saying your faith is much, much stronger than you think it is. Because if you go somewhere where there's not the kind of opposition that you have in America, you'll realize that it's actually quite easy to believe when you have nothing else to believe in. And so be encouraged by the simple fact that you choosing to be devoted to Jesus in the West is a decision that will fortify you in such a way that will prepare you for what I believe is to come to America. And, and just like the United States in many ways has become kind of a hub, kind of a hub of trade and commerce throughout the world, I think is also indicative of the kind of spiritual function that the church has in America. In fact, most missionaries that you see around the world come from the United States. A lot of the missionaries in the Middle East come from the United States and in China are from the United States. Why? Because God, for whatever reason, just based on how he set it up and how the founding fathers set it up, that the privileges and the freedoms we have here equip us for going out there. And so it is very, very important for us as, as American Christians to understand the importance of the call that God has placed on this nation, the importance of the call that's on the church of this nation to make us realize that he does, he has called us to be these guardians of the faith and guardians of truth and and strong men and women that are are a source of, of light and healing to people and nations that don't have the same access that we have. So okay, so I'll, I'll wrap it up here now. Uh, the, the the decision that decisions that I've made to do what Colossians two says, which is this circumcision of the heart, cutting yourself off. That Again, it's between you and God to determine what that decision will be. But for the first time this strongly, I think in my life, I have really understood what it means to be responsible for my own faith and not blame it on anyone else and especially not blame it on God. Because when I came to God with the problem of doubt and ineffectiveness, He showed me these scriptures and said, you find me one place in the Bible where it was hard to believe when all that you had to think about was the Bible. That was not even, there was no concept of it's hard to believe when this is all you have. And so his point was, what can you let go of? What can you completely forsake and abandon so that your affection is just on this? Because that was was the whole point. If this is all you know, and all you want and all your heart chases after, you're not going to have any problem believing. And that's a hard decision. It's, it, for most people, it's difficult steps to take because it's like, well, you know, what about my favorite show on Friday? <laughs> and, you know, what about these friends that I've been hanging out for? And I'm not saying you just end friendships rudely. What I'm saying is just think about this. And you'll, you'll start to realize that the benefit, the reward of living this way is so, so worth it, that the other things that you thought you enjoyed and were entertained by won't mean anything to you anymore. And that's kind of what I've started to experience, that the, the things that I used to be entertained by, if we're referring to movies, shows, whatever, entertainment in general, the things that I used to be entertained by now are just unpleasant. The desire for them is just not there anymore. And I've realized how much those decisions have benefited my life. And I want this for the church in America so badly because this is going to make us so strong if we realize what this then provides everyone else in the world around us when we choose this kind of exclusivity. It's interesting that God takes the Israelites and tells them to meditate on the word day and night. And then he he sends them out to battle. And they put a bunch of singers and musicians in the front line of the battle when they're about to go to war. And all they do is worship. And And it says that God routed all of their enemies and they ended up killing each other. So they didn't even have to lift a finger. This is, I think that's in like Second Chronicles 20. talks about that. There's examples all over the Bible where you take these people that God says they're actually small as far as numbers go. And they go into a land of Canaan where there's giants. It's called the descendants of Anak. It's these powerful people. And Israel is this tiny little nation. And all they know is that God says we'll succeed if we think about his word all day. And they're like, how does that train me To defeat all these nations if he just tells me to read the Bible. It's like, how does that work? And yet, they go to battle and win every single time. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. You don't have to understand why. Just understand that it works. There's a a stability, a, a strength, a resilience this adds to your life that people in the world who don't have this, just have never known. And so, um, originally this, uh, we were on a series about making disciples, and I wanted to take a pause from that, deviate from it for a moment, just to get us to understand that the call on the body of Christ has been as good soldiers to make sure that we don't get entangled with the affairs of this life. And the the thing that actually first uh, catalyzed this thinking in me was that at the beginning of 2019, or 2020, excuse me, I don't know if uh, how, many, how many of you guys remember, especially those of you who've been a part of Valiant from the beginning when we first started this. For 2020, we did a New Year's Eve uh, celebration worship night that we do every year. And um, during that worship night for 2020, on you know, New Year's Eve, God gave us a word for 2020 and what it was going to be For this church and the word he gave us was sanctification and at first i didn't understand the you know the real weightiness of that but basically the point was you have to be set apart and brought into repentance before you can be prepared for ultimately what we're after which is revival reformation or you could say reformation has to take place before revival and i did a number of messages on that early in the year that talked about how having a security in your life is Preparation for revival. No problem. Having a a security in holiness, in sanctification, is about fortifying yourself so a a people can bear the weight of revival. There's a number of messages that I did on that. and, And sanctification, that word came back, and now it's at the end of 2020, and the Lord just caused me to then recollect what that word meant and how the practicality, of sanctification is putting aside, cutting ourselves off from those things that would distract us. And so that's kind of the word for the end of this year. For those of you, especially those of you who are a part of uh, Valiant, if you've made this church your home, there's, there's <laughs> instructions that we're receiving from the Lord to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish. And we're starting to see a lot of fruit in this ministry and the things that are happening in, in Minneapolis and so on. And The final step he's asking us to take is really what he said to the Israelites. Because I can't get away from the fact that when God sent his people, Israel, into Canaan, the first thing he told them when they went into the land was, don't just destroy everything that breathes, not just living things. But he said, destroy everything the trees under which altars were were built, destroy the altars, destroy the wooden idols, the stone idols, the metal idols, vaporize them. He said, burn everything to ashes, then bury the ashes. It was like any and every trace of paganism and idolatry in those nations, you are to completely wipe off the face of the earth, completely eradicate. Now, when Christians think about like being free from sin, most of the time it's like, well, you know, I don't have any big addictions. What's the point? You go into the promised land, new life in Christ, every trace of any association or connection to sin, God says is completely wiped out. That's what God had the Israelites do in Canaan. And we don't, in our modern context, we don't really do that these days because there's so many things that we tolerate. And so I read those verses in in Deuteronomy and I was like god that just sounds kind of intense like isn't that kind of overkill for you to just Say don't just break down the idols, but burn them to ashes and then bury the ashes. It's like isn't it enough (laughs) you know and Every memory of it gone So that it was so cleansed. It was as if the Canaanites never lived there It's interesting because even in archaeology today, there I mean with the excavations that take place in and now it's you know like Israel, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, those areas, they'll do these excavations in what once was the land of Canaan, and it's surprisingly bare in a lot of ways. And all that is to say that to this day there's evidence of that kind of eradication in the land of Canaan that God instructed the Israelites to. to to go after. And so, uh, I'm going to have you guys stand up. I'm going to pray to close. Thank you, Lord. No condemnation. Okay. As we pray here, I want to remind you guys that Any ability, any choice that we make to pursue this sanctification comes through the power of God's grace. We don't make these decisions in our own power as though we're trying to earn God's favor or please him in our own effort. Paul said that he labored more abundantly because it was the grace of God that labored in him. So when we choose, this is the best part about God's grace, when we choose to answer the call and say, Lord, I want this in my life, he supplies the power for you to do it. So that way it's not like, man, God's putting a lot of weight on me for, to, to make all these good choices and try to be a good Christian, that's not the point. It is his grace, it is his power, but we have to choose to, to say yes to that repentance first. And so I wanted to remind you guys of that and, and I'll pray here, Lord.